Truth Espresso, episode 218. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, I am your host, Daniel Minnick, and I am here with my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea, and we are here to continue and do part two of Christmas is Pro-Life. And we had to take a little bit of a a break in between, air something else, just because we were kind of a little bit ill there, especially with our kids there, but things are under control now. We are back, and we've had a little bit of time to study, and our voices are a little bit better to record. And so, sweetheart, you're ready to talk about how Christmas is a very strong and uniquely pro-life holiday? Yes, this is a great series. I'm excited about this part two. Oh yes, because part two is really the positive part of that. Part one, we kind of talked about things that would kind of lead up to the idea, showed how the enemy, Satan, was pro-death, and the promise of the Messiah, which is a pro-life promise, was there from the beginning of history, and how Satan had used the serpent and Pharaoh and Haman and Herod to try to kill people and ultimately to take out the promise of the Messiah. But as God is the one who gives the prophecy and as God is sovereign, Satan cannot win in that battle. And so now we get to part two of Christmas is pro-life and we see that unlike how the enemy has always sought the death of children and to destroy the life that God has sanctified, Christmas is about celebrating and protecting children. And I know all of the holidays, Easter, about bringing the dead to life, (laughs) every holiday in the Bible has its life-affirming side to it, but Christmas is uniquely a very pro-life message because the whole story and uh, many of the details about the story of the first Christmas is pro-life to the core. And so, let's talk about how Christmas is about celebrating and protecting children, unlike how Satan likes to treat children as uh, a nuisance or an enemy, and how since they're vulnerable, we don't need to protect them. But, sweetheart, do you have anything to say about that, about celebrating and protecting children? Yes, I was just trying to think this through. Like, okay, how does Christmas celebrate the life of children, and how does Christmas demonstrate how to protect children? And I was just thinking that, I mean, kind of how you mentioned that there's so many details in the Christmas story from the very beginning that there's always this celebration of life. And even despite the struggle that we see Mary face and Joseph face, and then what they face together as a couple, like there's so many parts to it where you would be like, oh man, why did they fight through this? But they did because there was a 
celebration of life there still. They knew what was growing inside them and they knew that they were going to do all they could to protect that precious life. And I think that's just so in contrast to what we see today with people wanting to destroy life or even opposing and ridiculing those who value life. I mean, we are to the point now where we celebrate death more than we celebrate life. And that's the exact opposite of why we celebrate Christmas. We're celebrating Christmas because Jesus Christ came as a baby Mm -hmm. to bring life to us because he is life. Like, he's the one that gives us life. And like you said, this is just such a unique and so profound that oftentimes we just overlook the amazing aspect of the Christmas story and what all it means. And yeah, so I think like celebrating and protecting life in the Christmas story is something that's very evident when you go through and just read all the different details and stuff. Exactly, sweetheart. And we often think about Christmas with the nativity scenes. And the nativity scenes convey a very important message because we're talking about the lowly birth of the king of the universe laid in a manger. And of course, some nativity scenes might have barn animals there or whatever to demonstrate how humble this was. And so, yeah, that is a very important thing. But sometimes, as you mentioned, sweetheart, we overlook some of the details of the Christmas account and many of those important details are before the birth and that's what makes Christmas very uniquely strongly meticulously pro-life one of the details that we should first get to is just to think about who Jesus is because as we recognize in Christian orthodoxy Jesus is one person with two natures he is the divine son of God with full divinity who condescended to take on a full human nature so there's a reason that the son of God the Messiah didn't just appear on the scene as a full-grown king king. We might think of some maybe other religions that might have, uh, oh, here's a prophecy that some sky god might come down and win a battle, and that's what we look forward to, or something. Rain down, or throw a lightning bolt at the enemy, or something, you know, just all of a sudden appear on the scene, and Jesus wasn't going to be just some hidden person that no one knows about, and all of a sudden, this mighty warrior marches into visibility and starts overthrowing the enemy. No, it's important to realize who Jesus was, as the New Testament describes. He's the one through whom all things are created. Colossians chapter 1 talks about that, and so this one through whom all things things are created, actually becomes a human. And he didn't just take on an adult form. He was incarnated as a human from conception. Unlike what the Gnostics would teach in the second, third centuries and so on, that basically Jesus is almost like a phantasm that beamed out of Mary But it was a true birth. He was actually born in the biological sense of the word. And so he was fully human, and his incarnation meant an actual birth. He was actually conceived. He started off as a conceptus, or you call it, a a zygote. 
and fully developed and he didn't beam out. He was born. So just think about that. The divine son of God who created the universe condescended not just to become human, but to become a tiny little zygote. And sweetheart, do you have anything you want to talk about? You're our medical professional here. If there's any details just to really think about the embryonic development, like this is what Jesus experienced. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was kind of fun just looking at and kind of briefly talking about it with our kids too, like just how tiny a zygote is. So a zygote is the first stage of development once the sperm and egg come together and then it starts developing and we have a zygote. Although with the virgin conception there, however God miraculously created a fertilized egg via the Holy Spirit, Jesus was that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So starting at the beginning with the development of a zygote, a zygote is the size of a poppy seed. (laughs) So that's so tiny. (laughs) So it's just amazing, kind of mind-boggling to think about God created the entire world, the entire universe, and then his son, like you said, condescended, like became this tiny little poppy seed zygote. (laughs) And that was like the first sign of life that our Messiah had come. And I just think that Mm -hmm. it's just something like amazing to think about. And then as you progress through the embryonic development, I mean, three weeks later, 21 days, his little heart was starting to beat. And then he has brain waves starting to come in and little arm buds and leg buds. And <laughs> pretty soon um, the baby will start moving and it's just sucking its thumb. Yeah, sucking <laughs> its thumb, um, breathing. They can feel pain. I know like with research, the science shows us that before we thought they couldn't feel pain, then pretty soon we're like, oh, maybe at 24 weeks. Oh, actually they can feel pain earlier, 20 weeks, 18. I mean, now they're showing, okay, babies can most likely feel pain even at nine weeks. Wow. That's a big change there. (laughs) There's just so much information that keeps coming forth as our medical technology advances and just thinking of how detailed the pregnancy and development of Jesus as a baby and that he went through all those different stages because that's what he had to do to be able to grow into a man and take on the sins of mankind. So it was like, okay, he couldn't just show up and (laughs) be that conquering king like everyone expected. But he went through all of the stages of development. He went through all these things that we go through, but without sin. And (laughs) that is how he is able to take our place on the cross. And Mm. I mean, just thinking about all those details (laughs) is just really neat. Yeah, because when when we don't think about even that aspect, how all of that is important, as we said, Jesus didn't just show up as a man like, okay, I show up as a man now quick, put me to death and let me leak out my blood because that's what's needed for atonement. All of his existence from conception is what's important to lead up to that death on the cross. You know, the death would mean nothing if he didn't start off conceived. 
I know when I talked about the superhero series, is Jesus like superheroes like Superman, Batman, and so on? One passage I would bring up a lot would be Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, and that's a very important passage. Last Sunday at church, our pastor talked about that passage as a Christmas passage, Because it says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman or born of a woman, born under the law to redeem them that are under the law. Like all those parts, all those words are important. Jesus could not redeem those who are under the law unless he was born or made of a woman, made under the law. And that implies conception, development, like he had to experience the fullness of humanity from the very beginning to be fully human, to live a perfect life, to qualify as the spotless lamb and to be our substitute, to be under the law in the fullness of human life. So in the Christmas story... When does life begin? Um, Yeah, definitely at conception here, because we see that in the narrative. And we can overlook these details, but the account of Christmas in Luke chapters 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 1 and (laughs) 2, there's very strong pro-life statements in the narrative here. First, I want to look at Matthew uh, 1 verse 18 It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. The word for birth there is genesis, or, you know, the word genesis, new beginning birth. And also Matthew 121, it says that Mary brought forth her firstborn son. The Greek word there is ateken, which comes from the Greek verb tikto, which is a common word for meaning give birth. Now, it can be used figuratively, like in Hebrews chapter 6, it mentions the ground brings forth grass and so on, but it ultimately means to give birth. So, Jesus was truly born in every sense as a human is born. But then we also want to now look at before the birth of Jesus, the Bible describes him as human. It affirms his personhood. It affirms through the narrative here because Elizabeth, so the cousin of Mary, Elizabeth, six months before the angel Gabriel visited Mary, Gabriel visited Elizabeth, Mary's older cousin, who in her old age, normally would not be expecting to have children. She would be considered infertile. So this was a miracle to give her a child, which would be John the Baptist. And then six months after that, Gabriel visits Mary and tells her that she's going to have a child via the Holy Spirit, so not from a man. So Mary asks, how can this happen, seeing I know not a man? And Gabriel tells her, this is going to be a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And Mary says, be it done according to your word. So then not long after this, so it has to be within a three-month period, most likely the earlier part of this period, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth in her house. 
So Luke chapter 1 and verse 41, it mentions that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And by being filled with the Holy Spirit, in verse 43, she refers to Mary, who's newly pregnant. Jesus at this time is most likely up to one or two months in gestation at this time. So a small fetus, <laughs> possibly a zygote, you know, at some point here, you know, we don't know how early, but the early part of pregnancy here and being filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth refers to Mary as the mother of my Lord. In Luke one forty three. she says, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So she's referring to this tiny little fetus as her Lord, but she refers to Mary as the mother of my Lord. So according to the Bible, you're a mother if you have a child within you, not just if you give birth, but you are a mother if you're pregnant. So I think one of the coolest parts in the story is when, okay, so the rest of Luke 1 verse 41, and it says, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Oh, yeah. So I think it's cool just to see how human, how much personhood there is with the baby inside Elizabeth's belly, too. Like, that baby responds just to hearing Mary's voice yeah. in I think, I mean, that's an amazing part when you are pregnant and just seeing how the baby inside you can hear you and they can respond to music, they can respond to voices and they can respond to light. And yeah. it's just amazing. Like, okay, that is a human inside you. Like that is not something that is a blob of tissue that you can just disregard as having any personhood or having any rights. Like that is a human being inside you. You and I think that verse is just kind of a cool verse to demonstrate that as well. Exactly, because in this narrative here, all this good news, all this celebrating of life, the miracle of giving Elizabeth a child in her old age, and then Mary giving her a virgin conception via the Holy Spirit. So at this point, Elizabeth and Mary are both pregnant at Elizabeth at a later stage than Mary, but we have the personhood of both John the Baptist in the womb and Jesus in the womb affirmed in this narrative. So John the Baptist as a baby six, seven months gestation leaps in her womb, you know, <laughs> referring to him as he's not just a clump of cells, he's a babe leaped in the womb. <laughs> As Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, is referring to Mary as a mother and referring to this tiny little fetus, Jesus, as my Lord. And it's not like the future mother of my Lord. <laughs> yeah, and I think the, the narrative there is pretty amazing and very strongly pro-life there. Ding dong! Jehovah's Witnesses. Ding! Dog Mormons, Christian, are you ready to defend the faith when false religions ring your doorbell? Do you know what your Muslim and Jewish friends believe? You will if you get Andrew Rappaport's book, What Do They Believe? When we witness to people, we need to present the truth, but it is very wise to know what they believe, and you will get Andrew Rappaport's book at whatdotheybelieve.com. 
So my trivia questions will kind of be at a couple different times in here. (laughs) (laughs) Trivia pause. (laughs) Yes. So trivia question number one. (laughs) How old was Elizabeth? Based on most common research, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Hmm. Let's see. (laughs) I have no idea now, so I'll have to throw a number out there. Sixty. Hmm. <laughs> That's pretty good. There were some people, like some scholars, were thinking that she was sixty. Okay. But from what I can tell, most scholars think that she was eighty-eight. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. So kind of like an Abram and Sarah, yeah, um, type of thing there with John the Baptist. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of cool to think about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Still, even if she's that old, she's delighting in the pregnancy. You know, it's not like God. Why would you do this to me? You know, you know this is going to be difficult. You know, how am I supposed to be a mother at this age? And well, another thought too is <laughs> with Zachariah not believing. Yeah. Yeah. Not believing about Elizabeth being with child. And so he was struck (laughs) mute. Yeah. Until he could write, his name is John. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that's kind of a powerful thing for men, too, because sometimes I feel like older couples, that a lot of times men tend to be like. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm too old. How am I going to retire and be taking care of a baby or have a kid in college? And (laughs) so to me, I just think of that story of John the Baptist. Like, okay, hmm, if God still worked that way, would you become mute? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, I shouldn't be harsh on men. (laughs) Women have a lot of excuses too, but because the consequence was on a man in that. That just made me think of that. Yeah. I mean, of course, I'm also thinking of like, okay, you know, it might be kind of rough on Elizabeth's body there for labor and stuff. But, you know, if God performed a miracle to get her pregnant, maybe he eased things a little bit there. But okay, so we have Jesus who became a human via full incarnation by being conceived in the womb of Mary, and he gestated for nine months in the womb. There's nothing unusual about that. It was a virgin conception, but he went through the normal development embryonic process in the womb of Mary and had a normal human birth. He said he didn't beam out. He was actually born. And the words tell us that. And so, yes, fully human experience there. And I also want to mention yet another pro-life angle in this account. Because we think about, in, if we go to Matthew chapter 1, we have the account of Gabriel giving the news to Mary that she's going to be expecting. And then she tries to tell Joseph about what's going on here. I, I'm, I'm with child. And we think of the shock with Joseph wait, you know, I loved you, you know, we're espoused to be married, we're betrothed, and, you know, within a a year from now, as we prepare for this, we're not supposed to come together yet, but we will, we have this promise, it's written down, we're going to be living together, but what did you do to me? And Joseph is, as a just man, and not knowing the truth of what's going on here, he's going to be gracious to Mary to put her away privately, but then 
Gabriel shows up in a kind of a dream, a vision to Joseph to tell him, fear not, the child in Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid of what people will think. Fear not to take unto you Mary, you, who is your wife, by promise there, because what is in her is from the Holy Spirit. And because so then Joseph then believes the words of Mary, as unusual as they are, you know, <laughs> guess what? I have a child, but it was miraculously provided by God himself, you know, not a man involved. And But now Joseph seeing Gabriel, okay, now he's going to believe her and so now what you have here is the greatest unexpected pregnancy in history <laughs> according to Matthew 1:19 just think about it the pro-life message and caring for women is to care for women in situations where you have unexpected, unintended pregnancies. And you can't get more unexpected than this. And now, so we see what is this couple going to do about that? And that's what we see in the narrative. The perfect example of how a couple that God has chosen to represent this situation to deal with the world's greatest unexpected, unplanned pregnancy. I loved it when you were explaining that to me. It's just such a profound thought to like think about. And I think, again, that's one of the aspects of the Christmas story that we tend to just kind of gloss over or we're like, oh yeah, we've heard this before. Before, but when you really think about just the depth of what that actually meant to Mary, what that meant to Joseph, what it meant to their family and their community, that is what we see a lot of times with women that we work with in our clinic here. And it just reminded me when I was going to my midwifery training at school, one of the questions that they told us we had to ask all girls who came in for their first pregnancy visit was that we had to ask them if their pregnancy was planned or not planned. And if their pregnancy was not planned, then we needed to offer them referrals for abortions. And my first thought was, this seems kind of backwards that you're starting off the entire conversation about them coming in pregnant, that you're going to quickly turn it into, here, go get an abortion. Hmm. That just didn't sit right with me. But I would watch my preceptors do that constantly with some of these women. And a few times I had the opportunity to talk to the girls a little bit after my preceptor left and try to speak more encouraging words to them and tell them like, wow, this is you know so brave what you're doing. And it sounds like you're excited about this and you can find resources that will help you through this journey and stuff instead of just being like, oh, it's unplanned. Here, go have an abortion. But I was thinking about the story too, babe, and maybe you can help me think of some of these. So when we have women come through, we kind of look through different risk factors that make a woman more vulnerable to seeking an abortion versus, you know, someone who doesn't have family support their boyfriend's a drug addict or they're really young. I mean, there's a lot of different factors that can come into play that would make them more likely to see that an abortion would be an easier route. So just kind of looking through the story here, I was like, wow, there's a lot of risk factors <laughs> with Mary's age. She's young. Yeah. And this was my other trivia question for you. <laughs> 
So what age do you think Mary was? (laughs) Yeah, I've heard uh, all kinds of age ranges, but my guess is anywhere from 14 to 16. (laughs) Yeah, that was what I saw for the most part, too. But, I mean, that's still young in what we think. (laughs) Yeah. And then you have Elizabeth on the opposite spectrum where she's really old. So we have healthcare providers that say, oh, you're too young to have a baby. You better kill that child. You're too old to have a baby. You better kill that child. (laughs) So age plays the factor in that, um, the fact that she was not married yet. Hmm. So it would be like, okay, is she bringing dishonor to her family, to the community? Like what their religious beliefs were surrounding a pregnancy outside of marriage. I mean, eventually they have to travel because of taxes. So trying to figure out, oh, now we have to travel and we're pregnant. And there's so many different factors that came into play that it would have been so easy for people to pressure or for Mary to be like, oh, it'd be a lot easier just to go ahead and have an abortion in this situation. (laughs) And how many people, you know, if Mary lived during our times here, how many people would have pressured her into having that abortion? Yeah, definitely good thoughts there, sweetheart. As we see that in the Christmas account here, Mary and Joseph are the examples, the ultimate examples of a couple to prepare for how they handle an unexpected pregnancy. Now, of course, we know that this wasn't the result of what you know Joseph first thought, but it's the miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit, but they had the ultimate unexpected pregnancy. So what did they do? How did they handle it? That's what the story tells us. And it's very pro-life. So Mary and Joseph had to care for this fetus, even when they expected the culture to be hostile toward them. So they both knew the truth, and and God didn't even say, here's how I'm going to make sure that everyone in your town is going to understand just what happened. Like it, God seemingly left it up to them to deal with this, so they had to deal with the stigma that the culture might put on them for why would they have this child when they hadn't officially gotten married and fulfilled the betrothal period and to live together. So God entrusted this couple, Mary and Joseph, with caring for the incarnate Son of God. And, you know, I try to think like, okay, I'm glad that God chose Mary and Joseph because I don't know how I could have ever been a Joseph and had this monumental task to be the father of, you know, caretaker of the incarnate son of God. (laughs) We also have to think of, you know, even Joseph's role in here. So Mary as a young woman, you know, you mentioned the age risk factor here, being a young mother here. And then we also think of Joseph and the cultural stigma with that. So Joseph, via the angel Gabriel, realizes that he is going to be the fatherly role, the earthly fatherly role, for a child that is not his biologically. So that's another pro-life angle you have here, because then Joseph recognizes the role of being a father, and that fatherhood is not just focused on 
propagating myself, my progeny, my biological descendants. I've got to be proud of that. Joseph realized that his task of being a father was to father a child that wasn't biologically his. So he realizes that there is a selflessness in that. He's going to love a child that is not technically his so it's not just pride in his own progeny he's going to love mary take care of mary his wife and love this child as if it's his own (laughs) that is another strongly pro-life element in the christmas account Unbelievers now have no excuse to misinterpret the Bible like they ever did. Interpreting the Bible has never been easier or less expensive. Get your copy of What Does It Mean to Me? This teaches and demonstrates the importance of biblical interpretation. Proper biblical interpretation is the difference between truth and error, life and death heaven and hell this is created for your sinos that's your christians in name only readers will stop asking what does this mean to me and start asking what does it mean get your copy of what does it mean to me at trackplanet.com or on amazon.com today you want to get this before it's too late So one question that I would like for us to think about in this whole Christmas account, especially for those Christians who might maybe straddle the fence on the whole pro-life issue or might consider themselves even so-called pro-choice or technically pro-abortion, and if they think that somehow the Bible or God through his word somehow allows for or even sanctions the idea that abortion is acceptable or maybe that it's even a gift from God or it's some mechanism to take care of the poor such as women with unexpected pregnancies. But we have the example with Mary and Joseph with the ultimate unexpected pregnancy. But let me ask this question then. If abortion were okay, according to the Bible, would anyone think aborting the messenger, John the Baptist, given this account, the babe leaped in the womb? Or aborting the Messiah himself with the promise, the glory, the promise, he shall be great and be called the son of the highest. He will sit on the throne of his father David and reign forever. And Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit and referring to Mary as the mother of my Lord. Would anyone think aborting either of these that this would be an option that's sanctioned by God Almighty? Because if you think about it, if abortion is okay in any scenario, 
then it should be okay in either of these scenarios. But just to ask the question really is to answer it, I would think, according to the very strongly pro-life narrative we see in this Christmas account. And if it wouldn't be okay in either of these instances, why would it be okay in any instance? Because the Son of God condescended to be fully human. He wasn't a superhuman. He was human. And John the Baptist was just a a human too. And God didn't create some humans to be greater with their lives to have more value than other humans. Every human is created in the image of God, according to Genesis And so, if abortion would be unthinkable for these two instances, it should be unthinkable in any instance. So, I don't think the Bible provides any wiggle room for sanctioning abortion. I think going through this topic and just seeing how pro-life the Christmas story is and what all Mary and Joseph faced and that they still trusted God in doing what is right. And I think that's something that is hard for us. <laughs> like <laughs> It's hard to trust God and know, like, okay, I'm going to stand up for this precious life, but what's going to happen when I do that? And to me, that's kind of the hard part with some of the women we work with at our clinic is that sometimes we see women come through where they are excited to be pregnant. They're excited about this new life inside of them, but then they're not sure where to go from there. And then they have the outside pressure again of dads or grandmas or moms or boyfriends saying, oh, you're too young. You have a full life ahead of you. Or, you know, it's better to wait until you're married. Or, I mean, there's so many excuses that people give to say, like, this isn't the best time. You should just go ahead and have an abortion. And then to see these women change from being excited and being like, oh, I get to be a mom. This is great. To all of a sudden now, okay, now I'm pretty much being forced to kill my baby because all these other people around me are telling me that. And to me, it's such a sad thing that we have these women that want to do the right thing, but then there's so much pressure and so many obstacles for them to continue to do the right thing. And I think that's where you can just see like where Satan is at work of having this like pro-death culture that anything that is pro-life is going to be a challenge. There's going to be obstacles and we see those obstacles that Mary and Joseph faced. And I mean, thankfully, they were brave and stood Mm. for life and they trusted God and what he promised Definitely, and their affirming the value of Jesus' life was through his whole gestation. And also, as you mentioned, Satan tries to convince people to kill their own children. And yes, Herod wanted to destroy children because he wanted to destroy the one who's born king of the Jews. And so Mary and Joseph, they take care of the young child Jesus, the incarnate son of God, who is as um, one or two year old, or actually maybe be even younger than one at the time i forget you know maybe six months or so when they flee to egypt think of how much effort that was for them and how much they had to give up to flee to egypt just to avoid a soldier coming to the house to kill their baby and they're going to take care of it and 
And so, yes, definitely strongly pro-life throughout the whole account there of the first two chapters of Matthew and Luke. And so we see the incarnate Son of God who created the very process by which humans come into existence, sanctified that process himself by subjecting himself to it, the full nine months of gestation, and that only reaffirms how God values that which he created there. And so, yes, there's no point in pregnancy with which God sanctions the killing of the unborn, and Jesus himself is the greatest evidence of that. And Mary and Joseph, the greatest example of a couple dealing with an unexpected pregnancy and valuing life and let's not forget John the Baptist too you know so we would encourage you reread the Christmas story in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2 and look at those details anew and we hope that you enjoyed this part two of Christmas is pro-life, and we see that Jesus, who reaffirmed pro-life here, he has some things to say as the one who's the giver of life, who became a baby and had the uh, people take care of him, and he has things to say about the value of human life. And so stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso and for part three of Christmas is pro-life. And God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.